talking to the Students Bid Podcast. Today is September the 15th, and we have a special episode for everybody today. Uh, we have a Constitution Podcast episode, and uh, we're just here to explain to you guys and ask questions about the Constitution and everything like that. So I'm going to introduce everybody. So ob- obviously, uh, me and Cameron are here today, but we also have two new staff members to introduce everybody to. So I want to introduce uh, Cal and Ahmad, everybody. How are you guys doing today? We're doing great. I'm Ahmad. Nice to meet everyone. And I'm Cal. I'm super excited to get started with Kim and Austin and give you guys lots of awesome new content this year. All right. And we also have a volunteer working working with us today. Uh, We have uh, Samantha. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm really good. I'm excited about what we're uh, what we're about to talk about and learn about. And today we have our constitution expert, uh, Professor Blankenship. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for joining us. I'm doing very well. I'm actually grading student papers as we speak. Yep, already down in the in the early part of the semester. All right. So yes. as you know, uh, the Student Student Podcast, any opinions expressed here are not, are not necessarily those of our sister production, Six Mile Post. And uh, I think we can get right into the questions if everybody's ready. For the first set of questions, we're going to start off with the Electoral College. Uh, Mr. Blankenship, first question is, why did the framers of the Constitution create the Electoral College? The the Electoral College is a compromise, as is the entire document, the Constitution. The delegates at the Constitutional Convention could not come to a consensus on how the chief executive was to be chosen. Um, Some of the delegates thought that the president should be chosen by popular vote. Uh, Many of the delegates disagreed and said that the average voter did not have the capacity to pass judgment on such issues. So you had uh, a divergence here at the convention with some of the people uh, pushing for widespread suffrage and other people uh, insisting that legislative bodies choose the president. So uh, James Wilson of Pennsylvania, a delegate at the Constitutional Convention, proposed the voters of each individual state would vote for presidential electors. And then those electors would in turn cast their vote uh, for the president. Uh, Again, the fundamental issue here is a distrust of the common people. Um, It was feared that the commoner would not have either sufficient engagement with this country, sufficient knowledge, or he didn't have as much at stake in the outcome of the country as did his better educated and wealthier um, fellow Americans. So uh, it's a a fundamental uh, difference in how we should uh, elect our, uh, our leaders through legislative process or through the popular vote. Thank you. And what, if any, are the flaws of the Electoral College? Um, Well, I mean, it's conceivable that the electors of the various states could choose whomever they please. Uh, They don't always reflect the will of the people of the state. Uh, You can see this in 1876 when Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida, the electors of those three states, did not go with the popular vote in those three states and chose instead to elect the Republican Hayes. Um, This, of course, was done to end Reconstruction. So uh, it was basically just a a, a backroom political deal that was made. But theoretically, the electors uh, 
could go against the popular vote. So um, that's probably the major flaw. Okay. Uh, what if are the benefits of the Electoral College? Uh, the benefits today, I don't think are any. I think we'd be perfectly, uh, perfectly happy to do away with it. Um, there's a widespread belief in our country that everyone has the right to vote. This, of course, was not true in 1789. Only white men of property voted. Uh, African Americans, of course, slaves were not citizens at all and had no rights. Women certainly had no right to vote until what, 1920? So um, it's, a basic, um, it's a basic issue of suffrage. Who has the right to vote? And uh, now we seem to have come to an agreement that everybody, people of color, people of uh, both sexes, everyone has the right to vote. So um, it would seem to me today that the popular vote would be sufficient to elect a president without the intermediary body of an electoral college. Okay, well, you answered part of the next question. Um, it was, in, a, in your opinion, should we retain the electoral college, which you said you um, don't think we need to retain the electoral college? Is there a way to fix any flaws without amending the Constitution to do away with the electoral college? Or should we be looking at attempting to amend the Constitution in order to switch to either direct democracy or another method? Amending the Constitution is a very difficult process. I think it requires two-thirds of the votes of the various states. Uh, you're going to have a tremendous fight on your hands if you attempt that. In our country today, we can't agree on basic reality, much less on the subtleties of constitutional law. So I don't anticipate any amendments to uh, impact the Electoral College one way or the other because we can't get a consensus on whether it's raining or if it's sunshine outside. So I don't anticipate anything happening to it. There is no, um, there are no institutions out there that are being uh, hampered or crippled by the college. So there's no drive, there's no, uh, there's no incentive uh, to, uh, to rid ourselves of it. Okay, thank you. All right, um, are there any reading materials you would suggest students to check out in order to further their understanding of this topic or in order to make more informed decisions and to be able to engage in productive civil discourse on the topic? Well, there have been a, uh, a rash of books over the past five years uh, directly on the Electoral College. Uh, you can Google them or you can go to Amazon and uh, type in Electoral College and they'll pop up. I don't have the titles off the top of my head, but I know that I've heard a number of authors being interviewed in the past five years on various shows on NPR and Fresh Air, and I've seen reviews in New York Review of Books uh, dealing with this specific issue, tra tracking its history. Um, and uh, so I would, I would just recommend Googling it or go to Amazon. Now, there are a number of books on the uh, the early Republic and the founding of the Republic that are classic history books that you can consult. Um, you know, you have Gordon Woods with the, um, his famous history, the creation of the American Republic. Uh, you have Bernard Balin's book on the ideological origins of the American revolution. Uh, these are considered classics. Uh, you have, uh, of course, the famous democracy in America, this was written in the 1830s, 1840s, 
the Frenchman, the French nobleman, Alexis de Tocqueville, came here and he toured the country. Uh, he returned to Paris and wrote this book. Um, if you go to graduate school in history, U.S. history, you will read it. And it's worth reading. It's uh, very well written. And de Tocqueville makes an argument as to why the Americans are distinctly different from Europeans. And of course, the American people themselves believe uh, themselves to be distinctly different. We call this American exceptionalism. And Tocqueville lays out an argument as to how American exceptionalism came to be and what it means for both the United States and the rest of the world. So those are a few suggestions that I would uh, that I would lay out there for you. They're all, they're all uh, classics uh, in the historiography. Okay, well, thank you. Um, those sound like really good reads. Um, so if anybody was, any of our listeners want to add those to your um, list of books to read and, and be more informed, we would love for you to do that. Um, our podcast hosts here have um, come up with some suggestions for this topic, um, some books. Um, those would be The Indispensable Electoral College by Tara Ross. We also have The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College by Jesse Wegman. And we also have Taming the Electoral College by Robert W. Bennett. So those might get you started in the right direction. All right, so we're going to move on to our second group of questions, which is the, the collective versus the individual. So uh, for the first uh, question, in your opinion, how does the Constitution balance the collective versus the individual? Well, I suppose it does a reasonable job. You have the, the House of Representatives as voted directly uh, by free white men or property owning white men in the beginning of the republic. Uh, the Senate's, uh, senators are chosen by legislatures and the president was chosen by the electoral college. Uh, we now have direct election of senators. And if you'll notice what happened yesterday in California, we had a recall vote. Uh, Governor Newsom uh, suffered a, um, a recall. And this is uh, the product of what we call the populist party in the 1890s. Uh, the populace pushed for these type of political measures in order to make politicians more um, answerable to the public. So California has recall laws where they can uh, have an election like yesterday. Now, Newsom won this election easily, I think 70 to 30. But um, in the early 2000s, um, a California governor was recalled and removed from office. And Arnold Schwarzenegger took his place. So this is the product or the consequence of the populist reforms of the turn of the 20th century, trying to put uh, or trying to make American politicians um, uh, directly responsible to the voters. Now, the question you asked, though, it brings up a much larger issue. And it is the, uh, the rock upon which this republic will eventually crash. And that is the emphasis on the individual opposed to the interest of the community. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville that I mentioned a few moments ago, the Frenchman who wrote about us, said that Americans are different from Europeans because we're obsessed with individual liberty. And you can see this manifest in today's chaos in our country, whereby people have staked their entire political identity on something as commonplace and banal as face masks and social distancing and vaccinations. 
getting vaccinated when I was growing up for um, polio and the various other diseases was commonplace and people were thankful to have it. Now we're getting into fistfights and closing down school boards because we can't get a common basic agreement on common sense public health issues. Uh, because many Americans believe that this infringes upon their individuality and their personal autonomy. So you can see that the chaos that we're undergoing today is based on this dichotomy. Uh, Americans tend to think about themselves. They don't think about the larger community quite often. And this creates a great deal of tension in our society. Uh, we want to be left alone. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We're rather like spoiled brats who believe that we have the right to do anything at all. And um, like I said, this is the rock upon which this republic will eventually crash. All righty. Thank you so much for answering that. All right. I think we're going to move on. Uh, one of our volunteers, Ahmad, has a question for you. So, uh, Ahmad, if you have a, want to go ahead and ask that for uh, Professor Blankenship. So that actually answered my question. I was going to ask about um, if the balance between collective and individual rights should lean more towards the collective or the individual. But um, I'll go down to the next question. What are the constitutional amendments being used to legally argue for and against matters such as vaccine mandates and universal health care? Uh, I'm not sure I understand your question. Are you asking if there are amendments that directly address these issues? Like, like you said about how people believe that their like constitutional rights are being infringed upon. Um, what, what would they use to argue that? I guess like what amendments uh, would they use to legally say my rights are being infringed upon, or the opposite uh, position on that? such as, well, in the matters of like the vaccine mandates or like something like universal health care. What are people saying to back up those arguments? There is nothing in the Constitution, nor is there, is there, are there any amendments uh, that address this issue. This is uh, more fundamental than that. This, is, this goes back to American exceptionalism and this notion that we are free and unfettered. We have unlimited personal autonomy, um, that the government has no business in our personal lives or our economic lives. Uh, there is a, uh, in our bloodstream, there is this notion of laissez-faire. Uh, again, this is coined by de Tocqueville, a Frenchman. Laissez-faire meaning hands off. Uh, um, and this is a very powerful impulse in the American people, whereby we don't like to be told what to do there is a fear in this country. Uh, we call it republicanism, and this has nothing to do with the Republican Party. This is republicanism with a small r. Uh, this, is, uh, this animated our founding fathers. You can see it throughout the Constitution. It is the fear of concentrated power. We fear an executive with too much power, uh, corporations with too much power. Uh, in, anywhere power is collected in the hands of a few, Americans are instantly suspicious and wary of it. And what's going on in our country today uh, smacks many people as unwarranted power, requiring mask mandates, requiring vaccinations to work for a certain company or to work in a certain municipality. So these are uh, intractable problems. These are these are the, uh, the traits that make us Americans. 
and we are now seeing the contradictions emerge. So when Americans argue against masks or against vaccinations, they're appealing to this old notion that their personal autonomy trumps everything else and that they cannot be forced to do something, even if it's in their interest and, and even if it's in the interest of the larger community. Um, Americans tend to stake their identity on their stubbornness and their willingness to uh, sacrifice everything to uphold that identity. So do you have um, any suggested like reading materials or anything that would help people understand uh, the collective versus the individual and American exceptionalism? Hey, I'm on. Hang on just one second before we ask that one. Um, that leads me to another question. So, um, Professor Blankenship, so if they, at some point, if a vaccine mandate um, is if they were to try to enforce a vaccine mandate and it ended up, something like this ended up before the Supreme Court, um, are there any legal arguments for or against any of that? That could be made for a, a vaccine mandate by the federal government? Yes. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure how the power would operate here. Uh, presumably, the President of the United States could issue an executive order on this regard, but how you would enforce that, I have no idea. Um, certainly, you could not get a consensus in the U.S. House or the Senate on a, a vaccine mandate. There's simply too large, um, uh, too large a number of conservative Republicans in both bodies that would uh, fight against that. Um, the president might be able to issue an executive order requiring vaccines within the, uh, within the federal government itself uh, on the pain of uh, penalty or perhaps even termination if you don't uh, abide by that mandate. But uh, that would be fought out in court, I promise you. That would have to be resolved in court. That's not something that we can simply decide right. or, or predict the outcome of. So we're in a pickle. Our, our country simply is not psychologically and politically set up to deal with these kind of problems. Well, thank you for that. All right, Ahmad, now you can ask, ask your um, reading material question. So um, what materials would you suggest to help students check out uh, stuff that will help them better understand um, collective versus the individual and help help them engage in like productive civil discourse? Uh, well, the best one I've ever read is the one I'm, I've already mentioned a couple of times. That's Alexa de Tocqueville, Democracy in America. He goes through uh, and describes our character traits uh, this obsession with individual, individuality, uh, this notion of personal freedom, um, widespread belief that everyone's equal in this country, that, well, we're talking every, all white men are equal in this country, um, that every man's a king, that um, your individual liberty, freedom, and equality are what make you American. Uh, de Tocqueville goes through this in depth and describes how this makes Americans distinctly different from Europeans uh, who, who do not have this notion of individuality, this notion of laissez-faire, 
and uh, personal autonomy the way the Americans do. Now, one of the reasons that the Americans have these traits is because the European settlers who came here found themselves uh, confronting a vast continent, which could be theirs. All they had to do was either kill or remove the Indians. And you have a vast continent of uh, endless acreage upon which a man could uh, build his fortune. And so this created a sense of equality among white men that they could be anything they wanted to be. And de Tocqueville, uh, uh, he describes this better than anybody I've ever seen. I know the book is, I know the book is nearly 200 years old now. It's hard to believe, but uh, it still is the best written book on the on those character traits of the American people. All right, we're going to move on to our last group of questions for today, um, and that's interesting facts and important knowledge on the Constitution. Uh, so, are there any interesting facts of the Constitution you would like to share with our listeners? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, well, the Twelfth Amendment, I suppose, is, I don't know if, if people are even aware of this, the Founding Fathers, and I know we hold them up as deities and uh, almost a sort of secular worship of them and of their writings, the Constitution. Uh, let's face it, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence are both viewed as secular scripture in this country. You know, so they're only second and third to the Bible. Um the Twelfth Amendment um, remedied a neglect that the Founding Fathers did not see when they wrote the Constitution. The, uh, the Founding Fathers did not anticipate political parties. I know that seems hard to believe, but all the Founders were originally part of what we call the Federalists. And um, political parties simply were not envisioned for the future. Political parties were looked at as corrupt, as divisive, and um, as dangerous, dangerous institutions. Now, this began to begin to unravel in the 1790s. Uh, Thomas Jefferson viewed Alexander Hamilton's program for the country as dangerous and began to split the Federalists uh, even at the beginning of the Republic. So by 1800, uh, Thomas Jefferson who is vice president of the country is elected president. The, um, the founders did not envision political parties. What they envisioned was that the man who received the most electoral votes would be president. The man who received the second most electoral votes would be vice president. So they didn't envision political parties. Can you imagine today, think about the election of 2016 with Donald Trump president and Hillary Clinton vice president because she received the second number of electoral votes. That's the way the founders originally had this thing set up. Now, in the election of 1800, Thomas Jefferson received 73 electoral votes and his vice presidential candidate, Aaron Burr, received 73 electoral votes. So this had to go to the House of Representatives to be decided. Uh, Jefferson was chosen as president. And then the 12th Amendment was, uh, I don't remember exactly when it was uh, passed, but it was soon thereafter, uh, whereby the parties were designated. You'd have candidates for parties and you wouldn't simply appoint the candidate with the second number of votes as vice president. 
So that's probably something that most Americans are not familiar with. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that. It's very interesting. But on the topic of um, the founding fathers not envisioning certain, you know, things coming up from the Constitution, is the Constitution supposed to be ever changing? You know, as time goes on, things change inside the Constitution. Or when they wrote it, did they plan on it just staying this way when it was first written? So is it ever changing, or was it meant to always stay the same? No, it's an organic document. It's a, it's a living document. Uh, how many amendments do we have? Does anybody know? 27, 28, 29? I don't remember now. Uh, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments fundamentally uh, revolutionized the country, uh, does away with slavery, affords voting rights for African Americans, makes everyone equal before the law. Uh, those three amendments passed in Reconstruction uh, fundamentally reverse the original Constitution. The original Constitution has slavery in Article One, the three-fifths clause, whereby African-American slaves are counted as three-fifths of a person. This is, of course, for purposes of representation so that Southern states will have more congressmen. Um, so it is an adaptable organic document that changes with the times. But again, it takes an incredible political consensus to make changes, to make amendments to this document. Uh, it doesn't happen very often. And uh, I, don't, I don't see anything on the horizon that would, um, that would rise to the level of a consensus where you could give conservatives, uh, liberals, and progressives to come together on any issue at all. So it's an organic document built to change. Okay, uh, Sam, I think you have a question for uh, Professor Blankenship. I sure do. Hey, Professor, it's Samantha here. Um, what would you suggest for our listeners that would help them better? I'm sorry, what would you suggest for our listeners that might help them better understand our constitution? Well, the first thing I would suggest is to read it. Um, you can read it in 30 minutes. Uh, it is legalistic, but if you take the time and read it uh, carefully and slowly, uh, you can get it. There's three articles there, the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary. And it lays out in broad outlines how this government works. Uh, I would venture to guess, in fact, I would bet next, next month's mortgage payment that 90 8% of the American people have never read the Constitution. I think the only people who read it are historians and lawyers. So my first suggestion is to read the Constitution itself. And then my second suggestion would simply be to go online and um, Google some scholars who uh, sat and discuss the Constitution in a, an informal uh, way that's, that's accessible uh, to the common person. There's no magic wand here. Uh, the, the first thing you do is actually read it and then read the amendments. Great advice. Thank you so much. You're welcome. 
All right, Professor, that goes uh, like that goes into my next question, which is um, how important do you think civil discourse is in modern society? You know, especially as it relates to the Constitution, with a lot of people claiming, hey, I have the right to freedom of speech as per the First Amendment. Um, how do you think that relates to politics and how that affects social and public forums like social media, um, you know, public debates, things like that? Well, our civil discourse is breaking down. I, I guess you can see that uh, the uh, the public discourse in this country over the past five, six, seven years has uh, fundamentally been degraded, uh, diminished, uh, put in the gutter, so to speak. We say things in public now that we used to not say out of simple uh, politeness, out of civility. Uh, civility is gone. Uh, we say whatever we please. We use whatever vulgarities we please. We characterize our political enemies however we please. And um, so what, what we used to think of as civil discourse is dead in the country. Uh, you'll notice uh, even yesterday, uh, the recall vote in California, even though it was 70-30, the Republicans are already screaming that the vote, the vote is fixed. So what do you think is going to happen in the midterm elections of 2022? The conservatives will, will begin clamoring that the election is a fraud, that the election is stolen. And um, this, of course, marks one of those endings of the republic that I talked about earlier. Uh, this republic stands on the capacity of its population to trust and believe in the electoral process. Now that that trust and belief is being stripped away day by day, uh, and, by, and, the, and the main culprit here, of course, is Trump. He has systematically begin, tried in his most earnest way imaginable to strip away the, uh, the trust and the faith of the American people in the electoral process. That he does this for his own egotistical means is, is obvious, Yet there are uh, a few million people who believe him. So when 2022 comes along and the GOP complains that the election's been stolen again, then you'll see um, one more deterioration, both in public discourse in the country and in the life of the republic. Now, on this question that you just asked, it circles us back to the first question you asked uh, about the Electoral College and the fact that some of the founding fathers did not believe that it was proper for the average citizen to vote directly for president because they simply don't have the capacity to make that judgment. This is the argument that goes back to the beginning of the Republic. Uh, you can see it personified in the arguments between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. Hamilton said that the average person simply is not well enough educated, is not conversant with public issues, and has no business voting directly for the president of the United States. Jefferson disagreed. Jefferson believed that the virtuous and independent farmer had every capacity to do so. Now, I would tend to think that uh, over most of our history, I would tend to think that Jefferson's argument has proven out. Uh, but there are exceptions. Uh, let's face it. In 2016, we elected um, a reality TV actor as president. 
uh, I can see Hamilton rising up from the grave and laughing at us and say, you should have listened to me 200 years ago when I told you that the common people have no business voting for president because they don't have the capacity. I could hear Hamilton making the argument that if you want to elect an amateur as president, why don't you elect a bartender or a plumber or a transmission mechanic or a TV, a reality TV actor? So this is uh, circling back to the Electoral College, who should vote, uh, public discourse. These things are all tied together. The new thing, of course, is public media, uh, social media. Um, in my experience, social media is a contributor uh, to the wrecking of this republic because everybody tends to stay in their own echo chamber. Uh, people all have their choice of sources. And the average American does not have the slightest idea how to determine a good source from a bad source, uh, a credible source from an incredible source. So everybody lives in their own echo chamber. Everybody waits for the little ding to, uh, to confirm a like. And uh, this is getting worse instead of better. I don't know how you police it. I don't know what Facebook is supposed to do. Are they supposed to monitor every single post that goes up? Um, again, these are intractable issues, intractable problems. And uh, I suspect it's going to get much worse before it gets better. So kind of piggybacking off of what you just said. Um, so would you think that over the course of the past four years, in correlation to what you said about Donald Trump, that the way that he advocates and spoke during his presidency had a lot of a lot to do with what you're describing? Yes, yes. Uh, he is the key figure. He, um, uh, I mean, let's face it, guys. Trump tripped over every table in the room and was still elected president of the United States. Uh, Trump said two dozen things that would have automatically disqualified any other candidate in American history. He got away with it. How did he get away with it? Because there's a large group of people who cheered him on, believing that he was speaking his mind, that he was not politically correct, and all this other garbage. So people cast their vote for him. Um, and in doing so, they have... Um, allowed him to continue. And he's speaking out yesterday and today about the, the vote in California. He's already calling it a rigged election. Uh, and the same thing will happen in 22. And then in the presidential election of 24, if the Republicans are running behind, they're going to scream again that it's a rigged election. Um, this is the most dangerous uh, political development uh, in my lifetime. And I've seen a lot of crap go on in this country. Uh, I remember the Kennedy assassination. I remember Vietnam and all the lies. I remember the Watergate scandal, Iran-Contra, uh, all the crap that surrounds 9-11. And this is the most dangerous thing that's happened to our country since I've been alive because it fundamentally corrodes basic trust and belief in our institutions and our inability to come to a consensus on anything at all. All right, Sam, I think you had one final question. for. for I, I sure do. Um, I 
wanted to kind of end it on a light note and just I know that we talked about uh, the readings earlier in the podcast, the indispensable electoral college, the case for abolishing the electoral college and taming the electoral college. But are there any television or um, movies, social media, um, social media suggestions or any kind of podcast suggestions that you might have for our podcast listeners? Uh, let's see. Um, political movies. Uh, the Best Man. Uh, I think it's probably made in 59 or 60. Uh, it's a nice film about American politics. Um, Oliver Stone's film, JFK. You want to get into the Kennedy assassination. Um, there are some good documentaries on, on Vietnam, on the, on the war there. I guess the Ken Burns, the latest is the Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam. It's well done. Uh, podcast, my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Shannon Bontrager, who teaches history at Cartersville, as I do, uh, we're doing a podcast now called History Matters. Uh, we did our first one two weeks ago. Uh, where we dealt with um, the passing of a historian who wrote a book that we use in class called Lies My Teacher Told Me. And we use that book to demonstrate uh, Eurocentrism, that is viewing history from a a distinctly European point of view. Uh, This week, we're doing another podcast on uh, Friday, and uh, we're going to talk about Afghanistan, uh, the graveyard of empires, Uh, If you've been watching the news, of course, two weeks ago, you saw uh, the final debacle in Afghanistan as we're trying to get out of there before the Taliban completely took over. So we're going to discuss um, the American empire. We'll talk about Vietnam. We'll talk about Afghanistan, the invasion of Iraq, uh, our war in the Philippines, our war in Cuba. Um, that's, That's what I can think of off the top of my head. That's excellent. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. Well, Professor Blankenship, thank you so much for your time. This was very valuable information that you've given us, and we definitely appreciate every single minute, every single answer that you've given us. And uh, thank you so much for everything that you've brought to us today. Absolutely. Thank you. That was fun. That was fun. I enjoyed it. (laughs) All right. Well, everybody, I think that's going to end our podcast for today. Uh, You know, I want to reintroduce everybody that's new to us. We have Ahmad and Cal. And uh, yeah, and we also have Sam joining us today. So um, get ready for some new people. And we also have some some new developments with the podcast itself coming up. And I can't wait to tell you the news there. But uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Y'all have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.